Hello, and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is a cross-partisan nonprofit building a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Juliana Davis, and today, Rhea Mehta, Sarah Cho, and I chat with a friend of the pod, Nicholas Defanides, about drugs. Yes, drugs. Vaping, opioids, and pot looking at various dimensions, historic, psychological, economic, legal, and political, and exploring their impacts today and the implications for the future. Thanks for joining us. I'm Bria Mehta. I'm a senior at um, high school in Central Jersey, and I'm passionate about cross-partisanship and about human rights. I'm Juliana Davis. I'm a high school senior at School of the Future High School, and I'm a lead fellow for Next Generation Politics. Hi, I'm Sarah Cho. I'm a senior at the Spence School, and I, um, yeah, I'm very into immigration policy, particularly debating a lot of it in model Congress. And I'm also currently a lead fellow for the Next Generation Politics Civic Forum. Hi, I'm Nicholas Stefanidis. I've been a high school social studies teacher in the New York City Department of Education for 15 years now. There are a lot of different layers to the issue. First of all, you have to think about the opioid crisis as a crisis, as a public health crisis. The fact that the numbers are staggering. Recently seen a a slight decline just in the last two years, but it's still, if you look at the last five years, it's the highest number of deaths we've had in any five-year span in American history. So it's still a problem. Uh, in particular, fentanyl, which you know accounts for about 60% of opioid overdoses. Uh, so I think that's uh, an issue there. Marijuana is completely different the issue with marijuana and a little bit with vaping, it's a little bit more connected because marijuana does comprise a good amount of the uh, vaping industry uh, as with regard to how many people use vaping and some type of THC uh, derivative. Um, However, recently there've been some deaths related to vaping, which is kind of surprising how quickly, because when people think about smoking, it shouldn't be so quick. So, what the CDC has identified as a problem was one of additive that's typically done through a black market source, not through something that you buy at a store. So I think with vaping, the issue there is like it's still very new industry and they kind of have to work it out with a, just like with any other industry and they have to figure out how to regulate it properly. Uh, but like anything else, even the fentanyl dust, a lot of it is not necessarily the prescription drugs that people have. But again, the, the, the way that fentanyl is, is used in spiking in, in drugs. So we've always had issues with, uh, you know, black market drugs. So part of the conversation can be, are we just better off legalizing all types of drugs? There's other parts of the conversation which talk about, well, what about other alternatives like addiction treatment, harm reduction, and uh, even something called a needle exchange program or even a safe injection sites. So there have been some alternatives that kind of work in certain places. But um, unfortunately, it looks like that at the federal government level, a lot of those kind of get a lot of resistance. There are a lot of things to consider. So I would like to take questions on any one of those things. So I think an important question to ask that um, is important to both our listeners and to our own, you know, information is how did we get to this point in the opioid crisis, right? A lot of Research has been done to show that, you know, during the um, Obama presidency, a lot of fentanyl 
addictions and overdoses were, you know, for lack of a better word, ignored. I would argue that it hasn't, although it's, I think, been brought to a better light in recent years, government administration has not done as much as we would hope to do. So, you know, how did we get here? How did we get to this point in which we're trying to basically save America from this staggering epidemic? The how do we get here question was a good one, was one that I kind of looked into myself because I was curious for the same reason. So in the, around the turn of the millennium, uh, there was this push from drug companies and their lobbyists to kind of overprescribe. There was the quote, pain is the fifth vital sign. So the idea that you could deal with people, because most of it started from pain medication from hospitals, and then probably just like anything else, anyone who was in the black market saw that there is a market for this, even when people are not in pain. So it started around just around 1999, 2000, and it progressively got worse. And just like anything else, let's say like the HIV virus, which you don't know it's starting or, you know, I mean, today we have the coronavirus and people die quickly. So that's a little bit easier to kind of like say, hey, that's a problem. But when things take time to see the problem, we don't see the root of the problem until much later. So the root of the problem is about 20 years old, specifically with the opioid crisis. And by the time the Obama administration came along, they did address the problem, um, but at the same time, you know, you need congressional support. And, and it's hard to get that when you have such a strong, you know, organization for like the pharmaceutical organizations and their lobbyists, because it said so the Senate and the House both don't pass bills, and then it doesn't matter what the president wants. So Obama had a difficult time getting legislation passed, just like he had a difficult time getting legislation passed with the gun control. He clearly wanted to do that and he couldn't get it done. So we a lot of times look at the president as the source, but he just signs a, you know, a bill into law or, or you know, he doesn't get to vote on it. So that, that's the issue is probably lobbying and uh, individual senators and, and congressmen. Now, Obama though did take some measures to try to reduce the effects of the opioid crisis, specifically to take away the stigma. There's a stigma that people who do drugs kind of like deserve to die. They're like the, the, the survival of the fittest stigma that for whatever reason they fell into that state, they're the weaker of the society and we're wasting our resources. And Obama did a lot to kind of move from that stigma. And that's what I mentioned earlier. For example, he, there were something called a needle exchange program. Needles, if you keep using the same one, you know, they can get infected, they can get hepatitis uh, C and all these other types of problems. Um, so they basically allow people to go somewhere and just exchange old needles for new ones. But that's been stopped due to some kind of public health concerns. Then they had something else called safe injection sites. New York is actually, was one of the cities where they tried it out. But similarly, the federal government, you know, tries to limit that even though they're, you know, went to a federal judge and, and he kind of said that it is, okay because their outcome is they're trying to prevent drug use because there was a direct link between people going to these safe injection sites to also seeking help seeking treatment if it doesn't get the proper funding then it's gonna gonna be hard to, to kind of get through you know congress recently passed a three billion dollar kind of spending bill to deal with this but experts say they need tens of billions of dollars to deal with this problem so part of it is to also get the funding and to also kind of move away from the stigma so there's a couple of different ways that we can deal with this problem right now that you know we are not doing that perhaps would have better results.
Yeah, and I think that, you know, um, one of the, like, very, like, more stronger advocacies we see is, like, push towards rehabilitation versus punishment, right? And I think, you know, like, if you look at a couple examples, like, I think Portugal is probably the best example. Portugal, they uh, legalize all drugs, like, all wh- whether it's hard or soft drugs, they legalize all drugs. There, they said, oh, well, uh, you see, uh, you saw a, you know, reduction in, in, in drug use and a reduction in, like, it, it ended up, you know, having a positive impact. Um, the other side of that was that Portugal, about 0.01% of their entire population gets, in, like, gets incarcerated for a drug offense, right? So it's very, like, different culture and different conditions from the United States. So what can we draw from examples like that? And what can we, you know, look, what faults can we look at from examples like that in terms of implementing solutions in the U.S.? You know, there's definitely a split on legalization versus punishment. And I think that's definitely, I think, the biggest, like, framing split that we see. So you touched upon a couple of different things. So there are two different terms to consider. There's decriminalization and there's legalization. Decriminalization essentially is to take uh, crimes that are, especially like minor use of substance abuse uh, and to not put people in prison for that, maybe a a fine or a citation. Uh, Obviously anything with a lot of trafficking still gets, you know, major punishment. That's decriminalization. And then the idea here is to keep people out of the whole federal prison system and all the negative effects that has long-term. Legalization says that if we go further than decriminalization and allow people to safely produce and sell and regulate and tax, then you have even more benefits. Here's where there's been an interesting case study going back to legalization of marijuana. Marijuana technically still is a schedule one drug um, in the federal statute, uh, everything since 1970, it's called the CSA. And uh, that means that if the federal government wants to prosecute anyone using marijuana, even in a state that has legalized it, they can't. And then in 2000, you know, or during the Obama administration, the second term, there was something called the Cole Memorandum, which, which basically said, we're not going to waste our energy addressing this. We're going to let the states kind of experiment. From 2016 until 2020, you saw from it being just two states that had made marijuana use decriminalized or even legalized. Now you have 30. And that's kind of an experiment in federalism. That said, they have the Trump administration ended the Cole Memorandum. They could reverse that trend. The only reason why he's not reversing it is because it's you know, wildly unpopular to do that. And then the other problem with uh, legalization of marijuana, well, right now there are, there's uh, proposed legislation both in the House and in the Senate and bipartisan called the States Act. And essentially the idea of the States Act is to allow states to individually control marijuana. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because if that is successful, then it could definitely be a pathway to dealing with all types of substance abuse issues. And it seems like marijuana is going to lead the way when it comes to letting individual states address their their needs and addressing it in a way that destigmatizes people and decriminalizes it and looks for treatment and rehabilitation. So there is currently legislation, it just hasn't gained the traction that it needs. I would recommend that you guys contact your representatives to tell them that you support it. Yeah, no, it's interesting how you mentioned the CSA for, um, and for our listeners who don't know, that's the Controlled Substance Act, I believe you're talking about. And it's interesting also how in the Controlled Substance Act, like they're supposed to track the distribution of opioids, but like 
as we've seen like in 2018 and stuff, it was like revealed that like pharmaceutical companies were increasing access to like legal painkillers, despite the fact that it's basically been proven, as you've said, that they're being abused. And it shows the DEA's lack of ability to monitor the flow of prescription painkillers and to intervene. Just like from your perspective, I guess, is there a certain reason you believe that isn't working or like the DEA isn't fulfilling its its role properly and intervening or in carrying out what the um, CSA was meant to do? I mean, the, the Controlled Substances Act was mostly to deal with illicit drug use. So that means that the types of drugs that people cannot find over the counter or that they cannot find through a pre prescription. Uh, so part of the problem is that the opioid crisis stems from drugs that originated legally, uh, legally being dispensed, whereas other drugs like cocaine and, you know, heroin or, or you know, derivative, derivatives um, were originated from the black market, from illegal sources. So it's easier for the DEA to track them because they probably already have people looking at that type of activity to begin with, whether it's from gangs or other people. They already have kind of like their fingers in the root of the problem when it comes to the illegal substances. But things that today we're dealing with originated from legal sources, whether it was doctors or other people who had the ability to prescribe. So that's why I think the, the current issue is even more challenged because there are a lot of different stakeholders. It's interesting though that you mentioned heroin too though, because you know prescription opioids are seen as kind of a gateway drug into um, you know illegal opioids like heroin as it's like cheaper, I guess, in the black market. So I guess it also kind of not to like completely tie in socioeconomic class, but in some ways it does, it, it's a cheaper option um, to go into heroin. I know once addiction occurs and so, you know, it could more detrimentally affect people who don't have the money to continue purchasing prescription drugs or like don't have the ability to get a prescription. I just wanted to jump in and um, add something. There's this YouTube channel called Soft White Underbelly. I know that's a really weird name for a channel but it basically is like interviews that happen like outside on the street in front of like this background in on skid row in california and it's like interview with insert like opioid addict and they're very interesting to hear like the stories and kind of like similar to what sarah said they all started with like one woman talked about how it started because she had knee surgery and she was addicted to painkillers and then she ended up becoming addicted to like heroin and I think it was either fentanyl or ketamine and it's just it's very interesting that like a lot of the times like the the gateway drug like trope is mainly used to describe or to kind of like shame teenagers who use marijuana recreationally but like it does it is a real problem that does affect like adults when they're especially when they're using like prescription painkillers. I also would recommend the listeners watch this series of videos because they're very interesting. For myself, I remember first hearing about painkillers in any serious way. <laughs> you know, I'm going to date myself, but um, because you mentioned knee injury, and, and I remember the quarterback, Brett Favre, he was legendary, right? Like, you guys know Tom Brady now, right? So the way even people who are not in sports know Tom Brady, we knew Brett Favre. And I don't remember the year, but it was before 2000, but he had a press conference that he was addicted to painkillers. And I couldn't believe I was seeing a press conference of this guy talk about painkillers. I mean, this is a guy that takes the hardest hits that, you know, that has achieved the, the greatest success you can imagine. And yet he's here in a press conference crying, talking about the fact that he's addicted to painkillers. So I think part of the problem is that 
Again, we think that a lot of the people who could get addicted to painkillers are only those people on Skid Row. And as much as that YouTube channel would be interesting to see as to how they end up there, I think the reason why we have the numbers that we have today is because the type of people getting addicted and the way that they access the type of drugs is a way that we normally do not expect. People who have means and people who have people that care about them. So because they have people that care about them, a lot of times they will enable them in a way that's unhealthy, even though they don't intend to do that to the point where they can't get the help that they need. Parents, a lot of times we talk about how they didn't know what the problem was. They didn't know about it. They couldn't imagine that a painkiller can, can lead to death. And I think the only good thing that's come out of it is the awareness uh, that parents today have in parts of the country and in, in segments of the population that before they didn't. You know, the same way that me watching this guy, you know, talk about painkillers made me aware. You know, other people need to kind of wake up to the dangers of, I mean, fentanyl, has over 50 to 100 times the, the, the potency of morphine. And I've had morphine once because I've had surgery. And I'm like, 50 to 100 times that is extremely potent. So to, to hear that, to know that, I'm, you know, I'm looking for this information, then I'm aware that this is dangerous and can not go anywhere near someone I care about. So someone needs to be able to do that to people who otherwise would not know. And going off what Juliana was saying and then what you were um, talking about, I think Something that I've personally, like a little bit, you know, been confused about recently is that like there are a lot of conflicting studies on whether marijuana is a gateway drug or not, and I think that you know if you want to provide your insight and hopefully clarity on that issue, I think that could be something that would be helpful. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that Julian before said that the painkillers might be a gateway drug or the opioids. Growing up for me, marijuana was called the gateway drug, um, and today a lot of people see marijuana to have medicinal purposes. That's another reason why it's challenging is because, you know, the opioids have medicinal purposes that are established. So the government sees them differently, whereas marijuana has never really achieved that status. That's why they're still on a Schedule One status with the Controlled Substances Act. So until they are given the recognition from the government that they do have medicinal value, then it's going to be kind of an ongoing battle to really get rid of that stigma. And I think obviously social media has done a lot to, to do that. People see videos of people with either, you know, um, Parkinson's or some other major challenging kind of disability, uh, physical disability especially, and how, you know, either some type of medical marijuana or uh, cannabinoid allows them to function a little bit more normally. That is powerful. And I think that is what has changed a lot of minds. And I think that, like anything else, it takes time. I think that's the one thing I have to keep reminding my students and young people is that change takes time, especially if it's going to work and especially if it's going to be accepted. And, um, you know, when I started teaching 15 years ago, I kept telling my students, just you watch. In a few years, they're going to legalize marijuana. And it takes time because I understood that things take time, but also that stigmas are often associated with just outdated ideas. Stigmas were initially put there in the 1930s and 40s because the, uh, marijuana was associated with groups of people who were seen as dangerous. So it's easier to get rid of the dangerous people than the stigmas. So now we have to try to find a way to get rid of the stigma of this idea that marijuana is a gateway drug. 
I'm not a scientist, so I can't tell you whether I think it is or not. Personally, don't care for it much, but I don't see the arguments are really strong as to at least experiment with at least the decriminalization and more access for people who are trying to use it medicinally. I think there are very good arguments and data to support that right now. And I would definitely like for the government to invest more money to do their own research in order to see whether or not this is the case. That's why I mentioned the States Act before, uh, because another problem with marijuana is people who are trying to begin a business who need loans from banks, many banks are not allowed to give them loans. So what the States Act, uh, and there's an addendum to it, would do is allow banks to give loans to those types of businesses, because plainly they would be seen like as aiding and abetting illegal activity. You know, legislation is proposed to try to allow banks to do that so the industry can, can grow and allow the, it, it to grow in a way that the market demands. So now we got to the economics part. Yeah, and you know, as we, as we wrap up, I think drug culture in 2020 in America is definitely you know, a heavy topic. And you have a lot of aspects, whether that be you know, gateway drugs, marijuana, legalization, you know, fentanyl, date rape drugs. There's a lot. And how would you propose to like, listeners how do you, you know, consume starvation? How do you take it in for yourself? How do you understand not just how we got here, but why we're in this position in the first place? And, you know, how, you know, as like, as a, you know, as a teenager who's trying to understand what's going on, it's hard to consume all of this information and see news cycles constantly about, you know, different overdoses or whatever that may be. When you tackle this topic, how do you frame it in your own mind? That's a very good question. I have to answer that question in, in different ways. Number one, I'm a parent. So I have to enter it as a parent. And I believe at the end of the day, um, it is the parent's responsibility to teach their child about these things because they're out there. Now, overall, if I were to interpret my political feelings is I'm pretty much libertarian. Uh, I'm in the way, I'm in the thought that I, I want the market to kind of decide what it wants so long as it doesn't have a damaging effect to the greater good. So. At the present moment, I am a little bit more concerned about vaping than I am marijuana, just general traditional marijuana, because I just have an instinct that the damage can be much greater than we anticipate. So I would like to see that we had a flavor ban that was just passed this week, um, but it, it doesn't really have a, a whole lot of teeth to it. Uh, it's very limited. And um, I'm just worried that that right now is going to be the next public health crisis right after the opioid crisis. We're always going to have these issues because, uh, you know, the, at the end of the day, the problems are more internal. They're mental health problems, you know, emotional problems. So in a society, that's something that we have to work with. And as an educator, that, that's something that I'm very aware of because I, I get to see a lot of students and what, you know, kind of, it's background they come into the classroom with and we have to be very sensitive to that and that does make an impact in understanding why certain behaviors happen but at the same time like i said as an educator i have one way to look at it because i'm trying to do a public service as a parent i have a responsibility and then as a citizen i i also believe that legislation should reflect the greater good so i, I like to see the government take action to first do a sincere investigation into these, all these issues to see what are the benefits and what are the dangers, and then kind of give it back to the public. 
That's all for today, friends. I'm editor Sarita Adabala signing off for all of us at Next Generation Politics. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends, or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. Thanks for listening.